This is The Defrag. I'm James Parkinson. Since the pandemic began, in-person live events have taken a backseat. From lectures to press conferences, jumping into a Zoom meeting or watching a live stream is a very different but convenient alternative. Despite the downsides, many companies have embraced the virtual event. Apple is still making highly produced, almost cinematic keynotes, and for the games industry, pre-packaged videos have become an effective marketing tool to bring their biggest announcements direct to the consumer. But one major event in gaming hasn't been held since 2019, which has seen ripple effects throughout the industry, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, better known as E3. So E3 is effectively a giant uh, industry trade show. It's the big yearly show and tell, been around for many, many years, several decades actually, where all the major publishers across mostly the AAA industry and AA come together um, and sort of show off all their biggest titles for the coming year and beyond. In recent years, it's mostly been about what's coming in the next 12 months, whereas earlier iterations of the show were more sort of had a longer runway. It was more about what was coming in the next year, two years, even three years from time to time. It's always been sort of the hub around which all video game marketing turns. If you saw it at E3, it was something to take note of. It was something to be uh, excited about and keep track of until it came out. That's been its primary place within the industry to date. David Smith is the editor of Kotaku Australia. And the event is run by the Entertainment Software Association. Who are they and, and kind of what's, what's their deal? Yeah, so the ESA is sort of a, a governing body, if you like. So that they consider themselves one of the major players in the video game industry within the US. Um, they basically put on E3 each year. They pull it all together. They work with industry to both bring together the convention space and to make sure that everybody's got booth space on the floor. It began out of, I believe it came out of CES back in the 80s, maybe the early 90s, when video games were nowhere near as prevalent as they are now. It was a big industry, but they didn't have the spotlight on them that they do today. Those sort of humble beginnings at CES, like they found it quite hard to get traction. They found it quite hard to bring in people who were interested in buying the games to publish later, um, to bring them to market effectively. And so E3 was born out of that. At a certain point, the ESA was formed to really put that show together and see if it worked. And ultimately it did. Can you describe for me what it's like to walk the, the show floor at E3 and take in the experience in person? Oh, it's 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 overwhelming if you if you're not prepared for it. I've had people ask me this question before and sort of like to head in even as media, it, it can be yeah, overwhelming. Um, it's kind of like going to the show floor on PAX if that space was expanded by a hundred, it just seems to sprawl onward and onward. And then you realize that that's just like the West Hall that you're in. And there's actually a giant long hallway that will lead you down to the South Hall where the show continues. And then you can go downstairs underneath the LA Convention Center and there's more down there. Some of the most interesting stuff is down there. And then there's meeting rooms up above. It's giant and it seems to go on forever and it's noise and light and sound. But at the same time, it's so exciting. It's still, it was always very, very exciting to be there, be among so many people who were all there for the same reason you were. It came from a love of games, 
wanting to, to see what was coming down the line and be there at the head of the line to see it first. Yeah, it's, it's always a place that's, that's so packed with excitement. And even as the show has sort of gone on and in some ways gotten smaller over the years, that sort of core of it never felt like it went away. That always felt the same when you were on the floor. How has Ether evolved over the years? And when did it start to kind of lose its position and relevance as, you know, this big industry event? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it it sort of became a, a big deal in the early 90s when sort of print media was massive. And it's sort of that sort of slower pace of month to month uh, magazines allowed E3 to sort of become this thing of myth and legend where it was like we went to this giant show and here are all the things that we learned from it and we're going to drip feed that out over sort of months and months, if you like. As time went on and the internet came into the picture, things changed again. I remember some of the most important video game trailers I ever saw when I was younger came from like the cover disc on Hyper Magazine, the Metal Gear Solid 2 trailer, which you couldn't download in Australia because it was too big and too long. You could only get it on the cover disc of Hyper. And so that became the new delivery form for what E3 was spooking. You were getting it from cover discs. Time went on, the internet got faster. Suddenly we're moving to trailers and this was where a major turning point for the show occurred where it sort of stopped being so much about what was necessarily on the floor and the media who were there to play it and more about the trailers. It became about, it quickly became about showcases. It quickly became about these long, now very familiar um, theatrical moments where you're having devs coming out on stage to interview games and long trailers that are playing sort of stuff that we know about and stuff that we don't. And as time has gone on, that's become the thing that both made the game expand in size and then suddenly start to shrink as well, where publishers have realized, well, if we're just going, if we're getting the most of what we're getting from the show is coming from these showcases and the hype that we're generating online and the engagement that we're generating online from them, what do we need the booth for? We can go direct to market. We can go straight to the people who are going to be playing our games. And this has been E3's major stumbling block in the last few years. How do we continue the show as it's always been? And serve this audience um, of people online who are tuning in just for the showcases and are not attending the show. They've tried different things. They, in 2017, they opened the doors to punters for the first time. 2017 was actually the first year I went to the show and it was by all accounts, like a massive influx of people. There was real interest from public in getting into the show. That sort of buttressed it for that year. But even then in 2018, they were still looking for more ways to keep the show going and prop it up. They've had stumbling blocks. It's led to massive publishers like Sony leaving the show because they saw what Nintendo was doing with their direct-to-market videos, these Nintendo Direct uh, broadcasts, and said, well, that seems to be working for Nintendo. We, we could probably just do the same. And they have. It's worked out fine. What do you need E3 for when you can do that? And now it's at a point where that is occurring more and more. You've lost EA. Um, you've lost Sony. Nintendo still maintains a booth at the show, but it's not as core to them as it once was. Xbox main, remains the mainstay. They still really love E3. And whether that's out of a sense of this is how we've always done it or whether they still find it valuable, I suppose that's for them to say. But yeah, it's, it certainly seems like we're at a point now where if the show returns at all, 
we will start to lose publishers more quickly than we gain them. Right. So there's been a real shift to this direct consumer uh, approach as opposed to these huge shows where it's the one place where you get all the latest news, all the latest trailers, and big announcements like uh, hardware announcements as well. New consoles get revealed uh, at E3 in the past a lot of the time. Uh, can you remember the last major announcement that was made at an E3 event? Oh, man. The last major announcement. I actually, I'm, I'm like honestly struggling to remember, which probably says a lot. Like, it's hard to remember um, what the last big oh my god moment at E3 really was. Coming up, E3 struggled to survive in the face of a changing media landscape, a doxing scandal, and a pandemic. That's after the break. If you're enjoying this episode of The Defrag and you want to support the work that we're doing, head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a Defrag member. You can get an ad-free version of the podcast, a sticker pack, a regular newsletter and discounts to our merch. Plus, there's a number of other perks depending on your membership level. Becoming a member is really the best way to support the show. It empowers us to produce independent journalism and gives you the best of the podcast without all the noise. So head on over to our website, thedefrag.com, and become a member today. If you talk to a lot of games media, they'll probably tell you that E3 had been in decline for years. But from 2019, it was about to get much worse. Uh, in 2019, the uh, ESA uh, accidentally leaked the personal details of over 2,000 journalists and YouTubers and others after a list was published on their website publicly. How has that influenced the perception of E3, both within games media and the games industry? Extremely negatively. Um, definitely among media who were already... I mean, a lot of us, I think, were already sort of feeling that E3 was moving away from us and more towards um, more direct marketing to try and, and, and keep publisher interest. But that accidental doxing of a substantial portion of the global games industry was a final nail in the coffin for many, for many. And then 2019 went by and then 2020 was cancelled, that event, because of the pandemic, of course. How has COVID impacted E3 since then? Uh, pretty brutally. Um, I think I think the writing was on the wall for the 2020 show from the moment the pandemic began to spread. Um, we saw uh, Jeff Keighley, who had been a long-time host on the floor at that show, abruptly pull out not long before um, the cancellation order was given uh, and that news started to come out. Jeff Letter obviously went on to form uh, Summer Games Fest, which is now also taking a substantial bite out of, out of E3. Yeah, like, like a lot of live events, we've, we've seen it here at home in Oz with uh, PAX Australia and Oz Comic Con and shows like that where it's just, it's so hard to get that many people under the same roof. And for E3 where hundreds of thousands of people are coming through the doors, it's impossible. It's impossible to do it 
or it was impossible to do it safely for a, a couple of years there. Now in 2022, uh, I'm sure they'd be they'd be willing to give it another shot, but even that seems to have not been enough. Whether they weren't able to get enough interest, whether people uh, and exhibitors still felt that it wasn't necessarily safe enough to go back to the show this year. Yeah, un- unfortunately, if anything was going to bring E3 to an end, I think the pandemic was probably it. And how have the big game companies responded in the wake of E3 being cancelled three years in a row now? Mm, a, a lot of them seem comfortable, honestly. Like some have been, some have been dismayed, some have been sad that it's not moving ahead. But all of them have other irons in, in the fire at this point. It wouldn't surprise me to see Xbox move to a more sort of direct to consumer uh, marketing strategy, the way Sony and Nintendo have within this year. They already do streams and things like that. But to make it more official wouldn't surprise me. PlayStation won't be affected at all. Yeah, it, at this point, it's kind of a wait and see situation. Um, I'm sure that many people were planning for the show. How has the the direct to consumer approach changed the way games and, and hardware are marketed to gamers? Yeah, uh, it's it's changed it in the sense that like that there's almost no middleman anymore. Publishers can simply speak directly to the audience they're trying to reach, uh, and and in a lot of cases, yes, it is still like sort of the trailer fire hose. Um, you get through like a Nintendo Direct where every couple of minutes you're seeing a trailer for something else. We've seen as well PlayStation uh, State of Play broadcast Nintendo Directs that are built around a specific type of game. They're very much drilling down on a particular audience and then aiming right for them. There's so little space now between the publisher and the audience uh, and it's, it's sort of never been like that before. Obviously, because of the pandemic, we've seen such a big shift away from live events, uh, which was a necessity. And in some ways, certain events are coming back. And in other ways, they're not. Companies have found that it's an easier way and a cheaper way to to host things live or to create a package that they then stream live direct to their audience. Do the lack of these live events, you know, take something away from these kind of big announcements, do they hinder the marketing in that way or is it just just as effective? It's a good question. I think, I mean, based on sort of the social media reaction after every sort of direct-to-consumer broadcast, like a, a PlayStation State of Play, I think it's working out fine, honestly. Um, like they activate social immediately and then it sort of dominates the, the news cycle for the, the next 24 hours at the very least. I think we would lose something in not having live events, but in terms of the marketing plan for these larger publishers, no, I don't think it affects on the landscape for them at all. I think if anything, well, I don't even know that media would necessarily miss out too much either, provided we still have access. And in a lot of cases, we're now seeing these broadcasts at the same time as as the audience does, which creates another interesting dynamic. But yeah, in in a lot of cases, I just don't know that it, it necessarily affects the larger publishers, no. Earlier, you mentioned uh, another live event, PAX, which is going ahead this year, both in some US locations and Australia, which is a very community-focused event and a little different to E3. Does that show that there's still a desire for in-person gaming events? Definitely, yeah. And, and as far as like something like PAX goes, I admit like after PAX South 
was was ultimately shelved. I was worried that given that we are the farthest flung PAX show, that we could be next. Um, it would not have surprised me to have seen PAX Australia go away, given how hard it's been uh, for the team to get that show back up on its feet over the last couple of years. But we are moving ahead and I, there's clearly uh, an appetite for it. I'm so glad that we're all going to be back at the convention center in Melbourne again uh, in October. I'm honestly looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. So what does the future look like then for E3? Do E3 need to adapt in order to remain relevant? Or is there time coming to an end? And do we still need those kind of big industry events? Yeah, I mean, I'm sad to say, I honestly, if I go with my gut, I feel like E3's time is coming to an end, which is sad in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, I don't know if you saw it, Patrick Klepek over at Vice Games wrote a fantastic piece about his time going to E3 since his early days as a games journal, going with his father. It was a brilliant piece. I highly recommend you read it. And it sort of waxes a little bit poetic about the show that E3 was and the show it wanted to be, but couldn't ultimately become to save itself. It will be sad to see it go, but I do think that something else will arrive to replace it, whether that is Jeff Keighley's Summer Game Fest continuing that and maybe building its own live event around that or somebody else popping up uh, with another event to take its place. But for now, sad to say, I think we're going to be saying goodbye to it. David, thank you so much for your time today. Mate, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Also making news today. Ford is set to officially launch and start delivering the F-150 Lightning from April 26th. CEO Jim Farley posted a tweet indicating the date, and there's now a countdown timer on the Ford website. The F-150 Lightning is Ford's attempt to convert some of its existing F-150 customer base across to EVs. The base model starts at just under $40,000 and has a range of around 370 kilometres. Mercedes-Benz has completed a test drive of its energy-efficient EQXX prototype, achieving a range of over 1,000 kilometres. Rather than just looking to increase battery capacity, Mercedes is focused on efficiency, aiming to create an electric vehicle that could use just 10 kilowatts of energy per 100 kilometres. Tesla is often praised for the range of its vehicles and has invested heavily in battery technology. This has left other manufacturers like Mercedes playing catch-up to try and meet its performance. Finding ways to increase vehicle range is likely to be key for mass adoption of EVs. And Tesla has convinced a judge to reduce its liability in a racial discrimination case. In October, Owen Diaz, a former elevator operator, won a jury trial after alleging that Tesla had created a hostile work environment based on his race and was awarded damages of $137 million. Now, a judge has reduced that liability to $15 million, saying that the original figure was unconstitutionally large. Diaz now has 30 days to accept the ruling. The Defrag is a production of Lawson Media. The show today was hosted by me, James Parkinson, and produced by Christopher Lawson. 
With Good Friday tomorrow and the Easter break, our team will be taking a week off, but we'll be back with more news on Tuesday, April 26th. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous episodes at our website, thedefrag.com. Thanks for listening.